0: Welcome to Design Matters with Debbie Millman, the show that takes you inside the provocative and stimulating world of design and branding as it intersects with contemporary culture. Here's your host of Design Matters, Debbie Millman.
1: One of my favorite questions to ask my guests on the show is what their first creative memory was. After our interview is finished and we are safely offline, very often my guests ask me the exact same question. Consequently, I have become accustomed to relaying the dramatic tale of my early difficulty writing letter forms and my lifelong abhorrence of the letter H. But several weeks ago, after wrapping up a show and signing off the air, a guest surprised me with a question that so thoroughly staggered me I was incapable of uttering a response. In fact, I could think of little else in the days that followed. What he asked me was this. Do you remember the first memory you ever had? It was a simple, albeit perplexing little, inquiry, this nine-word question. And yet, in the time since asked, I have had to mire through mountains of stored memories trying to locate a logical lineage. I have found I was woefully unable to do so. I vaguely remember a giant rainbow stretching across the sky as I stood in my pajamas in the middle of a field in summer camp, though I see myself as only five or six, I know I had to be older. I remember being in the hospital after a hernia operation, waking up in profound pain after the procedure and seeing the worry racked across the faces of my parents. I recall being so afraid of their fear that I pretended I didn't know I'd been operated on. And I recollect spending summers with my grandparents in Brooklyn, walking up and down the avenues of Borough Park, alongside the religious Jews, mesmerized by the women's wigs and the curly sideburns of the young men. But I couldn't definitively decide which of these memories was my very first experience of remembering. But oh, the memories of Brooklyn that came back. Growing up, both sets of grandparents lived there, and I spent an inordinate amount of time in their care. My maternal grandparents lived at 333 McDonald Avenue. I loved visiting them so much that long after they moved to Florida and years after they passed away, I made a pilgrimage to their old apartment to pay respect to the time we shared there. When I arrived in front of the building, I realized that I had forgotten all about the little park directly across the street. My grandmother liked to sit on the bench to watch me play and was infinitely patient while I showed off how high I could swing in front of my friends. But when I saw the children's sprinkler with its silly little drain, I instantly recalled the endless hours I spent splashing in the swirling water as the light caught my grandmother's smile, and I immediately burst into tears. The memories of the home of my paternal grandparents weren't quite as clear, though I could conjure up the little two-family apartment with the strange neighbor upstairs and the big backyard out, side in the back. I loved that yard. I seem to remember a gate at the far end of the garden opening into a common, narrow pathway, which all of the houses shared. But here is where my memory gets faulty. Somehow... I recall a forest back behind the yard as well, and I remember running as fast as I could through this deep, dark, green forest until I reached the end of the path, at which point I found myself in front of a meadow and then in front of a waterfall, all in the Jewish section of Borough Park, Brooklyn. I don't think so. Where did this memory originate? After the challenging query from my guest, I needed to know. Was this my first memory? Is it even remotely possible that there was a forest behind a small string of two-story houses in Brooklyn, New York City? And where did the waterfall come from? I needed to investigate. I took the subway out to Borough Park, armed with a map of the area, and quickly found the little old house in nearly the same dilapidated state of my youth. I nervously rang the front door, but no one answered. I walked all around the block, seeking a way through to the back of the buildings, but found none. Only one thing was absolutely, perfectly clear. There wasn't a meadow or a waterfall. I couldn't help but berate myself. What was I thinking? Did I really expect to find a waterfall? By the time I got home, I decided to try the Internet. I did a Google search for Brooklyn Waterfall and came up with nothing. Then I clicked on Google Maps, typed in my grandparents' address, and chose the satellite view. And right before my eyes, there was the block. The same string of houses, the same school nearby, the same long avenues. But this view was different. It was aerial. I didn't find a waterfall. I didn't see a meadow. But behind the houses, I did see trees. In fact, by New York City standards, there were lots of trees. And they were huge. There it was, right in front of me, big trees on a little block, one seen by a little girl. I can only imagine how it might have seemed possible that this forest could somehow lead to a waterfall. Somehow. Do we make our memories, or do our memories make us? It's hard to tell. Either way, perhaps it is best to treat memories as skeptically as we do sentimentally. Maybe our memories are simply volatile fugitives longing to find a way forward. Maybe, just maybe, our memories are less about what we remember and more about what we wish for. Welcome to Design Matters with Debbie Millman. I am your host, Debbie Millman, and my guest today is Jonah Lehrer. Before we get started with our interview, please let me tell you a bit more about him. Jonah Lehrer is 26, and he is an editor-at-large for Seed Magazine is a graduate of Columbia University and a Rhodes Scholar. Jonah has worked in the lab of Nobel Prize-winning neuroscientist Eric Kandel and studied with Hermione Lee at Oxford. He has co-authored a peer review paper in genetics and worked as a cook at restaurants including Le Cirque 2000 and Le Bernardin. As a journalist, he has profiled Brian Greene and Elizabeth Gould, spent several days in the kitchen of the fat duck, and recorded bird songs and ruminated on Stravinsky for National Public Radio. He has written for Nature, NPR, Nova, Science Now, and the MIT Technology Review, and writes a highly regarded blog known as The Frontal Cortex. In 2007, Houghton Mifflin published his first book, Proust Was a Neuroscientist. Welcome, Jonah. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, Jonah, I'm so excited to have you on the show. So, of course, I have to ask you, I have to ask you, do you remember your first memory <laughs> of being creative or the uh, first memory you ever had here you have a choice which you I can answer? I was afraid
2: you would ask me either one of those questions.
1: <laughs> I um, had to, I had to.
2: Um, my my first remembered memory is I'm almost positive a complete fabrication. Uh-huh. Uh, it's a story my parents always told about me being three.
1: Uh-huh. My
2: dad took me on a business trip, and he said I played by, with my Legos in the back of this conference room the entire time while he was giving a talk or whatever he was doing. And uh, and, and they elaborate the story in great detail, and so now I've got this very specific, intense memory of playing in the back of some nameless conference room um, with my Legos while my father was talking. And, and I, I'm... Almost positive. This memory is a a complete fabrication, a complete lie, just stolen from others. So, know. I mean,
1: do you think that most of our memories are lies? But probably not complete lies. In that, you know, certain events do indeed empirically happen. But how much of our memories do you think is fabrication?
2: Well, I think it's tough to say. I think I, I think the important point to remember is is that the act of and 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 this is where the findings from our neuroscience I think really can be brought to bear on this question. Is that every time we remember a memory, we change the actual structure of the memory. So, so I, so I think it's a little tough to say what you know, you know exactly how honest our memories are. I think we should treat them skeptically. Um, but, but, but the important point to remember is that the process of remembering a memory, of summoning it to the surface and thinking about your childhood in Brooklyn and the meadow. Um, the, the structure of the memory, as represented in your brain, the neuronal structure of the memory, is subtly tweaked every time you remember that memory. Um, and and that idea by itself is pretty bleak. The idea that the more you remember something, in a sense, the farther removed you are from the memory itself, from the original memory trace.
1: Why is that? How does that happen?
2: Uh, well, well, we, we don't quite know why our brain is built like this. Um, the you know you know some people theorize that. The brain really isn't very interested in pristine memories. It wants memories that, that that can be applied to you know, you know to the present context. Um, and so this is the brain's way of always updating its memories, of, of kind of updating the past in light of what we know now. Um, and so we're constantly tweaking our memories in light of present knowledge. Um, so that's one theory of why this process called rec- reconsolidation exists. Um, but 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 it is, as I said, a a somewhat bleak idea. The idea that the past as Proust put it, is in some sense unrecoverable. He he said the past like a fugitive, just like you. Um, <laughs> and, and, and that to remember something is to fundamentally change it. Um, and in the brain, people have done experiments with rats. Um, and yeah, no one's gone too far beyond rodents for, for obvious ethical reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, but but they showed that if you block the process of remembering a memory, the memory itself disappears. Um, and, and so this shows that, that our memories are, as scientists put it, very labile. Um, they're, they're always changing. Um, and that to remember something is to change it.
1: Did you, see the, um, did you see the movie Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind?
2: I have. I have. And, and uh, a guy by the name of Joseph Ledoux at NYU, a scientist at NYU, has actually <laughs> kind of done that movie in Wrath, where he's shown that it's possible to erase very specific memories. You know, you can induce very specific amnesia. Um, so, so that movie might not be as fictional as it seems.
1: Are you familiar with the um, type of work that's being done um, psychologically? Called, I think it's called EMDR. No, I'm not. Oh, that's done with light. But I know that that is, um, a lot of people that have experienced trauma go through this in an effort to relieve some of their post-traumatic stress disorder. And I know that it's been very successful at reconfiguring some of the neuropath- neural pathways in the brain. Huh. Um, but, I, but I thought it was interesting. One of the things that I liked so much about Eternal Sunshine was the idea that even if you do erase certain memories given your personality, you might be predisposed to just recreate those experiences yeah. all over again. Yes.
2: Yeah, well, you know, I, I think the other thing the movie gets at is is that our memories aren't simply individual things filed away in some file cabinet of the brain, that they, that they really are webs. Um, and that to think about the park in Brooklyn is to also think about the meadow and the waterfall and your grandparents, and that our memories are in this seamless reticular web. Um, they can't be separated, you know, in, in neat individual piles. They're not little bits of data that, that can be disentangled. Um, so I think, you know, you know that's also just, just a fact of the brain. The, the, our, our memories emerge from this network of neurons in the brain, and they can't be plucked out. So, so, to, so to erase a memory is, is, in a sense, an impossible, you know, to erase a specific memory is a very, very difficult thing to do because our memories are all interconnected.
1: Now, in addition, I want to talk to you a lot more about your book, but I've been spending a lot of time on your blog, The Frontal Cortex, and I want to ask you a couple of questions about some of the articles that you have recently written. Um, This is a quote from one of the pieces, and you write this, According to the facts of neuroscience, your head contains 100 billion electrical cells, but not one of them is you, or knows you, or cares about you. In fact, You don't even exist. You are simply a fancy kind of cognitive fakery, an epiphenomenon of the cortex. The self is fiction. The idea is hardly newsworthy. The ghost was expelled from the machine a long time ago. And yet we often forget just how crazy the concept really is. Think about it. The facts of modern science contradict the most basic facts of our experience. If we know anything... It's that we are real, that our first-person experience is lucid, vivid, and tangible. We feel like more than just a loom of electrical synapses. And yet, what Gertrude Stein said about Oakland is also true of self-consciousness. There is no there, there. So how is it possible that we can perceive a self at all?
2: Well, I mean, that, that that is the big mystery, I think. I think that is one of the big essential mysteries of modern neuroscience, which is why if you ask, you know, the, the most essential fact about my existence and, and the existence of everyone else is that we exist, is that I feel like a self, I feel like me. Um, and and yet, to look at how, how that feeling, that selfhood emerges from this loom of neurons, is on the face of it an absurd question. Um, you know, there is no homunculus. There is no single spot in the brain that gives rise to me. I emerge from the simultaneous parallel activity of a trillion neurons. Um, and, and the question of how that happens, how, how the wine of me, the wine of my subjective first-person experience emerges from the water of the brain, um, that, I mean, that's, that's a mystery. We don't even know what question to ask, let well, alone what the answer is.
1: Right, do you think that there's ever a time where we might actually be able to find where consciousness resides in our brains?
2: You know, I think it's very tough to bet against science um, and, and scientific progress. I, I have little doubt that, that in a few years or a few decades, neuroscience will find what they call the neural correlates of consciousness. So they'll find the network of cells in the prefrontal cortex or wherever that gives rise to conscious experience. I think that will only beg the real question, which is, you know, you're still just talking about neurons and electricity, the fact is, we feel like more than just the sum of our cells. Um, we don't feel just like electrical oscillations in the prefrontal cortex. So, if that's the answer, the question still remains: Well, why do we feel like more than that? You know, you know, where does the taste of wine, the 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 redness of red, you know, where do those intense subjective sensations come from, and how do they emerge from these three pounds of wrinkled meat? Mm-hmm. Um, so, so the real question, I think, is is a question we, we don't even. You know, it, it, it's, it's so profoundly difficult. It's such a profound mystery. We don't even know where to begin. Um, but, but that said, I do think neuroscience will one day kind of find the isolated network of cells from which we emerge. Um, the question, you know, scientists call it the bridging principle. Um, how, how, how you actually connect qualia, first person experience to, to the facts of the brain. And I think that's, that's a mystery which, which we're not gonna solve for a long, long time, if ever.
1: Now, what made you decide to study neuroscience in the first place? What, you have quite a lot of different things that you do. I know that you're a cook, you are a writer. What, what gave you the impetus to study science?
2: I, th- I think questions like that. I think questions like uh, consciousness. Questions like, you know, I, I remember as a kid, this gets back to, one, you know, my first creative experience. This isn't quite creative, but I remember looking through one of my mom's old psychology textbooks. And these are one of these old dated textbooks. And just marveling at these pictures of the brain and cells, understanding nothing. I was probably 10 years old or something. Understanding nothing but just realizing how weird it was to think about me being, you know, three pounds of something else. Um, and, and that just boggled my mind and still boggles my mind. Um, so, this, so that's, I think, I was always drawn to just the imponderable questions of neuroscience. <laughs> um, it's it like a science that was just most full of these, you know, head-trippy mysteries. Um, so, so I guess that's why I stumbled on neuroscience.
1: Well, let's talk about your book a little bit, Proust Was a Neuroscientist. It came out uh, last year, at the end of last year. I found out about the book from the extremely excellent website, Very Short List. And um, I immediately ordered it and read it and then uh, wrote you about appearing on the show. You write in the introduction of the book that the moral of this book is we are made of art and science and i love that line and i was wondering if you could elaborate a little bit more on what you mean by that
0: well the book is
2: about artists who anticipated the neuroscience of, of today and i think one of the things i took away from researching and writing the book is that modern neuroscience has this very particular view of the brain so we are just you know a trillion neurons we are just acronyms and proteins and and stuff in synapses. and synapses and that's great um you know, that's a very important way to look at ourselves And that's the modern neuroscientific view. But as I said before, I I think that view, by definition, leaves something out. Um, It it fails to capture the reality we actually experience, which is this subjective first-person view of things. And I think that's why we need art. Um, Artists, I think, are uniquely able to capture experience as we experience it, Um, to write novels that feel true, Um, to, to create paintings that move us for reasons we can't quite explain. Um, so, so, so that's what I mean when I say we're made of art and science. That that there are these two aspects to our being, and simply describing us, you know, just in terms of novels and artistic descriptions isn't quite complete, and just describing us in terms of you know neurons and acronyms doesn't really do us justice either. Um, so, so I I try to kind of combine these two views in my book.
1: And you picked eight artists, Walt Whitman, and you write about the substance of feeling, George Eliot, where you talk about the biology of freedom, Auguste Escoffier, The Essence of Taste, Marcel Proust, which is one of my favorite chapters, The Method of Memory, Paul Cézanne, The Process of Sight, Igor Stravinsky, The Source of Music, Gertrude Stein, The Structure of Language, and Virginia Woolf, The Emergent Self. And I want to talk um, a lot about Marcel Proust, um, but I do have one question for you about Virginia Woolf, and, and I'm a, a huge fan of Virginia Woolf. Um, you talk quite a lot about To the Lighthouse, which is one of my all-time favorite books. But I'm, I'm rather curious why you chose Virginia Woolf and not James Joyce.
2: That's a, that's a really good question. Um, you know, I get asked the question a lot how I chose these artists, and, and I always wish I had a good answer. My process was so idiosyncratic. Um, you know, once I actually did, the idea for the book began with Marcel Proust and reading him while working in this lab though studying memory. And then once I had this idea that artists could actually anticipate neuroscience, I, I was pretty, you know, I, I just went to all my favorite artists. And, and tried to see if, you know, how I could look at them in terms of modern neuroscience. Um, and, and I and I do think Virginia Woolf was particularly adept at describing, not not the stream of consciousness, because um, I think, you know, George obviously was there first and I think he, he really put this inside his character's brains. But it kind of showing, I think, I think what Woolf really did so well was show us how an objective sensation, like looking at a peach or a pear on a dinner table or eating a beef stew, how how the objective sensation slowly ripens into a subjective sensation. So she kind of takes you through the full arc of sensation, which I think is what interests me so much. By by showing the world from different viewpoints and not just through the mind of, of one narrator like Bloom, she really gives you multiple glances on the dinner table or whatever you're looking at, the lighthouse, um, and, and, and shows you how different people see from different perspectives, how the same sensory facts are seen differently. And I think that's what she does so well. Um, and uh, you know, and I think that illustrates the point of the chapter a bit better than Joyce did, but obviously. Joyce was a neuroscientist too. Um, yeah, I was I actually. Want to <laughs> take that, take that anything from Joyce.
1: <laughs> yeah, let's have an argument about Joyce versus Wolf. No, I was actually thinking a lot about the last paragraph of *Ulysses*, uh, where Molly Bloom goes through her stream of consciousness. But there's a there's a chapter, a paragraph actually that I want to uh, read from the book. Um, this is in the chapter by Virginia about Virginia Woolf, and you write what Wolf learned about the mind from her illness: its quicksilverness, its plurality, its queer conglomerate of incongruous things, she transformed into a literary technique. Her novels are about the difficulty of knowing people, of saying that they're this or were that. It's no use trying to sum people up, she writes in Jacob's room. Although the self seems certain, Wolf's writing exposes the fact that we are actually composed of ever-changing impressions that are held together by the thin veneer of identity. Like Septimus, the prophetic madman whose suicide is the climax of Mrs. Dalloway, we live in danger of coming apart. The mystery of why we do not always come apart is the animating tension in her art. And I thought that was a, a really extraordinary way to describe the way that she writes. Um, Jonah, before I ask you any more questions, I do have a caller on the line for you. Um, Gregory, thank you for calling Design Matters.
0: Hey, Debbie. Hey, Jonah.
1: Hi, thanks for calling.
0: Thank you. Um, you know, I, I'm curious to know first of all why uh, Proust got the credit instead of the other writers why, that why you chose. They, like why Bruce Bruce is Proust the neuroscience scientist? Yeah. Um,
2: you know, I, I it's probably a marketing decision. Okay. Um, oh, good. Well, you know, I don't know, see, the, I, I would an have answered answer. it that way. <laughs> oh, no, I, mean, I mean, that I and mean, that's a fascinating question you know, in itself, why Proust became his brand name, why he's in Little Miss Sunshine, why we've got a book called How Proust Can Change Your Life, why a, another science book that came out, but at the same time his mine, was called Proust and the Squid, how Proust somehow, you know, this this image of this dapper French man with kind of a curly mustache became this pop culture icon. I, I, I can't quite explain that either, but I think why it's Proust was a neuroscientist, not Walt Whitman was a neuroscientist, or Virginia Woolf was a neuroscientist, is probably just 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 marketing um the the title wasn't really mine
0: okay well i mean that's good that's such an honest answer i I love that now i don't know if you're aware i'm no expert in astrology but proust was cancer and you are cancer Hmm. and cancer is a water sign and water rules the memory Hmm. so it's all about memory for water signs like cancer or pisces or scorpio and uh, I didn't know whether, whether you even knew that you, you shared an astrological sign with Proust or not. I, I didn't know that. <laughs>
2: wow. now, I'm, so no, I'm, I'm happy to claim any affiliation with Marcel.
0: <laughs> I, and I'm so happy, I have to tell you I'm so happy that you include George Eliot in this because she's my second favorite writer of the 19th century, and I think she's just one of the greatest writers, period. I um, and I, I'm curious to know what your favorite book is.
2: Um, my favorite George Eliot is probably Middlemarch. It's um, really? probably the safe and easy answer. Um, I, I just think that that novel blows me away every time I read it. I think there are a few novels where I go back to and just discover completely new elements of the novel. Um, you know, completely new subplots and themes um, that that, I, that 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 weren't there in the initial reading. Um, she, she really is just so dense um, and working on yes, so she many different levels. Um,
0: yeah. so, so I'd have to say Middlemarch. Well, it's not my favorite book. <laughs> Daniel is my favorite uh, book. Yeah, it really is. I think it's a great thing. But if this is so interesting, and I'm just, I just can't wait to hear the rest of uh, what you guys have to say. Thank you, Jonah. Thank you, Deb. Thank you,
1: Jonah. We thank you, Gregory. Jonah, we have another caller. We, you know, and this is a lovely woman who's called in before, and I have a, a particularly difficult time with her name, but I'm going to try to do it justice. Uh, her name is Gazala, I believe, from Canada. Thank you for calling. Hi. Did I do it okay? Did I say it wrong? It is okay. Um, I guess
3: it's because of the two languages, English and Farsi, but gazelle comes the closest,
1: ah, like gazelle.
3: a gazelle. Okay.
1: <laughs> Thank you for calling.
3: Um, thanks for having me. Uh, hi, Jonah. Hi. How are you?
0: Good. How are you?
3: I'm doing great. I'm really excited to um, have a chance to ask you some questions. Uh, I immediately got um, this morning, I got Debbie's newsletter for uh, her talk, and I saw that you were. I actually, I did not know who you were at all. <laughs> I'm a student in uh, Toronto. I'm a design student graduating this year in graphic design. So um, I've been a huge fan of Debbie's, and I um, I saw a huge connection with with all the stuff that you're talking about and my interest in, in in design and its future and sort of like language and. Um, Future for society, and I just I wanted to ask you something. I read your article um, in Seed on the future of science as art, and um, I wonder if all this talk is is really about language and which is communication and understanding. And I believe that we're lacking what we're lacking in the world is is expressive, reflective writing or art or whatever you want it something that we create as individuals that connects to people's hearts and actually motivates them to do anything and and i feel like this you know we're so hesitant to talk about love these days and and how how and passion and how we connect to other people so i feel like a lot of stuff that that you've written that i've took a highlighter and highlighted i feel like it's it's not really science and art or or you know the, the words that we label uh, these these things in society I, I feel like it's much more internal that it's more of a an individual um uh component of ourselves and and it really comes to the brain which is you know what you study and the, the left side and the right side of the brain and and the creativity that comes. And um, I guess I'm, I'm getting to the question right now.
1: <laughs> <laughs> That's <laughs> okay. Take your time. Um, we're with you. Okay,
3: sorry. Um, so I, I guess I'm just going to leave off with a, with a quote that I've been looking in, into some philosophy from in the 70s. And um, this is by David Cooper from The Death of the Family in 1971. He writes, We have to play tricks with language until we finally generate a certain vertigo in ourselves through which words falsely assumed to transmit knowledge lose their apparent meaning until a more real discourse is possible, implying ultimately the invention of a new language, a language that does not only have to be spoken and written. In the future, I believe books will never be written again. Books will be done, thus literizing the cliched metaphor that writing is an act. So, I wanted to know you're you know you're really on the forefront right now with what what you're talking about with this art and you know whatever you want to call it. I think it's just creation and expression mm-hmm. right now because um, I don't I call myself a designer. And I wanted to know what do you think the new language is, and if you uh, agree on that this is really about language here and communication to understand the future. <laughs>
2: Oh, I mean, the, the, <laughs> language. the new language, right? Wow. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> and and um.
3: expression and self and, and experience. And what are your thoughts on, on those on those words as well, opposed you know, to I, art and science?
2: I think you did touch on something about how I think the ultimate purpose of expression and creation is to kind of get beyond ourselves. I think some of these scientific ideas I talk about in the book are ultimately depressing, at least to me, a little bit. You know, the idea that our memories are constantly, the, the truth of our memories are constantly receding every time we remember a memory. I talk in my chapter on Pulses On about how our visual reality is in large part an illusion. Of, you, know, you know, we construct our visual world. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I think so many of the ideas in modern neuroscience are are about our own subjective isolation, how we are imprisoned within our one little brain which sees the world in its little peculiar ways and, and, and that, to me, is a slightly bleak idea. Um, and, and so I, you know, I see art or creation or expression or even just human language. I think one of the mm-hmm. you know, beauties of that is it allows us to get beyond that. It allows us to take our different views of the world and somehow merge them. Um, and that's, that's, that's one of Virginia Woolf's great themes. So that's, that's the purpose of art or expression or whatever you want to call it. Um, is that allows us to all experience the same thing when we're all sitting mm. in a movie theater or looking at the same painting? Mm-hmm. We know for a moment that we're sharing that experience. We're all yeah. looking at the exact same drips of paint on a canvas, um, and so we can get beyond our own little prism of you know our own little prism, our own little slice of reality. Um, so, so I mean that's that's not a new language; it's a very old language. But I think that is mm-hmm. a consolation um which 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 i think we naturally seek out because we are trapped within our little brains um and our little ways of seeing um so you know that, so do you that, think
3: the language is already there we're just covering it <laughs>
2: um yeah I, I mean i um you know i'm i'm not exactly sure how how to talk about a new language i mean i you know i'm um just, just you know, I, I think we do have this particular language we've evolved mm-hmm. culturally for expressing ourselves, mm-hmm. um, and, and sometimes it works better than other times, and, and some people are better using it than others. Uh, well, I think also,
1: Joan, if I could interrupt for one second, I think that um, what our, our limbic brains seek to do is to reach out to connect with each other. I know that um, if given the choice, uh, little baby chimps would rather uh be held by their mothers than than receive food if they had to choose. Um, And I I think if there's one thing that I I got from your blog about sports that I think really (laughs) changed my viewpoint about the idea of observing other people Uh, play sports is this and I'll I'll read this quote from your blog Um, but how many of us regularly watch sports to be a better athlete we don't generally count our days at the ballpark as educational experiences or imitate the stars on television in the hopes that we might one day win a gold medal on the balance beam we watch sports for the feeling the human drama we watch for those surges of emotion in the ninth inning or the last 10 meters of a race when the game of victory is decided by invisible inches in a climactic sports moment when feels the oxygen disappear as thousands of fans collectively inhale. Mm -hmm. Pulses rise, men begin to sweat. A stadium of strangers, every eye looked in the same distant game, suddenly becomes bound by a shared emotional tension. I love that. (laughs) Really nice writing, Jonah. Thank you. Well, thank you for calling.
3: Thank you. Really
1: glad to have you on the air with us.
3: I'm really glad I called. Take care. Bye.
1: Bye, so Jonah, um, I wanna talk a little bit more um, about some of the artists that you've included in the book. Um, We talked a little bit about Virginia Woolf. I also wanna talk about Cezanne. Um, And you write in the book, Cezanne's art was a mirror held up to the mind. And you wrote that Cezanne discovered that visual forms, the apple in the still life or the mountain in a landscape, are mental inventions that we unconsciously impose onto our sensations. His art shows us what we cannot see, which is how we see. And I wanted to ask if you could talk a little bit more about that and how that is possible.
2: Um, well, well, I think one of the places to begin is with Cezanne's late paintings. Um, and, and when Cezanne first started painting these late paintings, um, they were characterized by their emptiness. They were often watercolors of the Provencal landscapes near where he lived. And, 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 and what strikes you about these late watercolors or some, some of the more oil paintings is just how much blank space there is on the canvas. And, and when Cezanne first tried to sell these paintings, people said, you know, Paul, you're not finished. That painting's not done and yet he insisted that the painting was complete, that it was perfect, that, that he'd capture the landscape. So, for example, he was painting a mountain, and he'd summarize the entire, you know, the entire mountain with just a single brushstroke, a single swerve of gray, and the, and, you know, the olive groves and vineyards in the foreground are just a few dabs of brown or purple or green or whatever. And, and the amazing thing about these paintings, even though people at the time thought Suzanne was just being lazy, is that your brain seamlessly fills in the entire landscape. Is that you still are able to see the mountain and imagine the olive groves and, 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 and see the craggy Provençal cliffs. Um, and I think the reason Cezanne was so confident about just leaving his canvases mostly blank is that he realized that the mind would do that, that the mind would seamlessly fill in his empty spaces, that we would still be able to see the mountain. Um, and I think that captures one of the big themes of his paintings, which is his confidence that, that his, his, his belief that what we see is more top-down, so to speak, than mm. bottom-up. You're well, we constantly imposing yeah. forms onto a blank canvas or onto the real world.
1: Yeah, you, you call that top-down processing. Mm-hmm. So, so can you talk a little bit more about what top-down processing actually is for our listeners?
2: Well, well I, I think the conventional, the, the classical view of visual perception is that the, the mind saw the camera, that pixels of light enter the eye, hit the retina, and then the brain develops the film, so to speak. Um, so that's, that's, that's very bottom up. It's just we have these sensations, which we then perceive and develop. Sounds simple. We um, mm-hmm. you now know that the brain doesn't actually work that way. Um, that, then that you've actually got ten times more nerves going from the top of your brain, so to speak, or, you know, the prefrontal cortex, the parts of the brain involved with higher cognition, down to the parts of the brain involved with visual perception, then vice versa. Um so so literally it's more top down than bottom up we're constantly you know, kind of projecting what we think we'll see onto what we actually see you know the most obvious example is each of us has a big blind spot in the center of our veal division where the optic nerve connects the retina and yet of course we're blind to our own blind spot you know our brains you know naturally fills in that void um, so so that just gives you an example of of, of of just how mixed in the imagination is with perception itself mm-hmm. Um and I think Cézanne really takes advantage of that and, and, and forces you to become aware of that in his paintings. You know, when he paints a mountain with just one brushstroke, and yet he paints that brushstroke so perfectly that you still see the mountain, I think what he's showing you is, you know, look what your brain does. It, 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 it imposes its form onto the blend canvas. Um, and, and that's a very deliberate move on his part. He wasn't just being lazy.
1: Well, you you write in the book that, that Cézanne, uh, his epiphany was that our impressions require interpretation. And that to look is to create what you see. And um, you wrote that the eye is not enough. One needs to think as well. So do you feel that seeing is 50% actual vision and 50% interpretation? Are they equal? Is one more important than the other? Tell us about how that seamlessly comes together to create reality, if you can.
2: No, no, I mean, it, it's, it's tough to put percentages on it. Um, and, it and it's not just vision. Um, you know, one of my favorite examples um, comes comes from the world of smells. Um, vomit and Parmesan cheese, the big odor in both of those, is, is, a, is a compound known as butyric acid. If you just put butyric acid in a jar and have people smell it blindfolded, half the time they'll think it's vomit, half the time they'll think it's cheese. Um, and... <laughs> No, yet of course, in real life, we never actually confuse the two. We, you know, common sense overrules our actual sensations. Um, So, you know, so so the basic point is our senses are very vague. Um, You know, they're trying to collect data in real time. We're always besieged by this avalanche of sensory information, and so the brain's job, and it's a very very hard job, is to always be making sense of this. To try to be making sense of what actually is entering all these various sensory modalities. And so that requires lots of shortcuts. It requires us to fudge the details, you know, and 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 to sometimes confuse our expectations with, you know, with what's actually happening. Um, I, I talk in the book about some great studies done with wine critics in France where. Um, a, a cognitive psychologist in Bordeaux took so 54 wine critics, um, gave them a red wine and a white wine. Except that, you know, in asked them to describe the wines, of course, the red wines were jammy, full of crushed red fruit. The white wines were lemony, full of, you know, tropical fruits, um, buttery. You know, they used the typical adjectives we use to describe red and white wines. Then he had them come back the next day. Only this time, the white wine was actually dyed red, so people thought it was a red wine. <laughs> <laughs> now of course the white wine tasted just like a red wine. It was full of crushed black fruit too. It tasted like black currants. Um so you know, and you need to wine experts. Um so the point is that that you know, kind of what we think we're sensing is often not about what's in our mouth or what's entering our eye. It often has much more to do with what we expect to sense, um and, you know, and, and and just you know, our natural top down processing.
1: Now I, I know you write in the book about our senses of smell and taste being uniquely sentimental, and you write that they're the only senses that connect directly to the hippocampus, and this is why we feel these senses or experience these senses so much more strongly than some of our others. Um, can you, there seems to be a very dramatic connection between smell and taste and memory. Is this why?
2: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think I I think it is because of this little, you know, freakish circuit of neuroanatomy. Um, You know, just just our sense of smell is our primal sense. It's our most ancient, and it's and it's uniquely connected to our center of long term memory, the hippocampus. Um, And 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 that was one of Proust's insights. You know, he talks about the Madeleine um, and and dipping that in the lime flower tea, and all of a sudden his memories of Combray, not Brooklyn, um, came (laughs) came flooding back. you know, it, he, he, he says very explicitly in the book is by taste and smell alone that, that, that the memories come, came back. You know, he'd seen these cookies, these, you know, all over Paris and all these different bakeries and never remembered anything. It wasn't until he put the cookie in his mouth, the madeline in his mouth, that his memories of Combray came flooding back. Um, so I think he captures there that, that the idea that our sense of smell and taste are uniquely nostalgic and they are.
0: Now,
1: it's interesting that you talk about the taste testing and the expectation that one has of an experience, and as somebody that works quite a lot in the world of branding and consumer products, I am always thinking about how products make people feel and and the Cachet that may be associated with certain products versus another and why people feel better about themselves while engaging in certain experiences or with certain products. And I wonder if this is all really brain play as well, that you could be wearing something that you think is um, going to provide more of a social confidence and therefore you will feel more socially confident. I mean, Absolutely. I think that's a real Absolutely. interesting connection um, from a, a very subconscious level.
2: Absolutely. I mean, perception is reality. Um, yeah, you know, I, I I'm. I'm actually writing an article for the Boston Globe on, on, on that very subject, talking to you know these you know this new field of neuroeconomists. Um, you know, many of whom were her are, are saying this exact same problem: how how brands affect our perceptions. Um, and so they've, much of the research actually. It actually revolves around wine experiments. Um, And and they've done studies using brain scans, using fMRI, watching people as they sip different wines. And what they find is that when people think they're drinking more expensive wines, which in the wine world is the equivalent of a brain, when you're told that that this wine is $90, all of a sudden you you expect it to to taste better. And sure enough, people think it tastes better. And you can see differences in their brain. A specific part of the prefrontal cortex gets much more excited at the idea of drinking a $90 wine than a $5 wine. What's most interesting about these studies, though, is that the wine people actually prefer the most when they're completely blind, when they're not told how much the wine costs, is the $5 wine. Um, And yet, when they're told that this wine is $5 and this wine is $90, of course, they always think the $90 wine tastes better. Um, and, And you can actually see differences in brain activity depending on how much they think the wine really costs.
1: That's fascinating,
2: um, that is so, absolutely fascinating. So, so, you know, I, I mean, you know, and, and people have done studies with Coca-Cola and Pepsi and shown how these different brands have slightly different patterns of brain activity. So, you know, in a sense, these, these very practical questions are reducible to patterns of brain activity. Um, and, and different brands have different emotional associations and all that. Um, so, you know, I do think neuroscience is finally getting to the point where we've got enough resolution on these brain scans to, have to be able to pick apart these differences where we can see the actual difference between a $90 wine and a $5 wine.
1: Now, I, I've heard the term neuromarketing. That's a word that's been used quite a lot in uh, the advertising and design communities over the last year, but this is the first time I've heard of neuroeconomists. So this is a, a neuroscientist that's also an economist, is that? Yeah. Well, well,
2: much of the discipline is is neuroscientists. Um, it, you know, it's it's made up of neuroscientists and economists. Um, They do lots of brain imaging research, um, and and they're asking lots of interesting questions. Much of the research actually kind of is involved with refuting the idea of the rational agent model, the centerpiece of economics, that people are rational creatures. Um, And of course, when you look at the brain itself, what you find is we're very emotional creatures, and much of our brain is, is driven by emotions and these unconscious processes. Um, and then perched at the front, at the very top of our brain, just, you know, just behind the forehead, is the prefrontal cortex, the center of rationality. But that's just a small, small bit of brain, you know, it's a few microchips in this big mainframe. Um, and so, you know, I think, so, they're, they're certainly complicating the idea of, of pure rationality, of people being these rational agents, and instead trying to replace it with a much more nuanced and accurate model that instead we're actually driven by, you know, the emotions, many of our decisions are emotional. And, of course, that's where brands come into play. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when you buy a Prada shirt, it's not because the cotton's is so much softer. It's because the brand has, you know, all these emotional resonances. Um, and, 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 and that's why you prefer Prada over, you know, Hanes or whatever.
1: Quite fascinating. Quite fascinating. I want to get back a little bit to uh, your book. And, and you talk a little bit about how neuroscience has ransacked the brain and dissected the cortex but it has not found our source. And we talked a little bit about that at the early part of the show. Um, What do you think would happen if we were able to find that source? Do you think that would actually be a good thing for our humanity or a somewhat scary thing?
2: (laughs) Um, You know, I'm not sure those are mutually exclusive categories. It could be good and scary. Mm, Um, it, it, It would certainly scare me. You know, I'm not quite sure what practical application it would have um, because you know it's not you know there aren't zombies walking around who have somehow lost their source, lost their self. Um, but but um, but but you know I'm. It's very tough. You know, as I said before, I think it's very tough to imagine how we could find the answer to that question. Um, that 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 would be more than just another neural correlate of consciousness. You know, because because I, I think even if you find that, there's still this mystery. Um, you know, that will remain. Um, so, so I, don't, you know, I don't lose sleep at night worrying
1: about no <laughs> expunging my soul. Uh, well, let's talk about that mystery a bit. Um, you write that the self is no single thing, and yet it controls the singularity of our attention. And our identity is the most intimate thing we experience, yet it emerges from a shudder of cellular electricity. And our reality seems to depend on a miracle. So my question is, do you believe in God?
2: Oh, I've, that's, I've got I've, I've got a complicated answer to that question. I, I studied theology for a year at Oxford on my scholarship, um, trying to figure out what exactly I believed, and, and I, I was I was more confused after a year than than before I started. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I I wouldn't call it God. I think I'm 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 convinced that that the modern neuroscientific paradigm, this idea of reductionism, of of Trying to believe that we'll solve the brain by breaking into its smallest possible parts, so that we are just a trillion cells. I think that paradigm has real limits, um, and that's that's something I try to get at in this book.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, you know how how we are in a sense greater than the sum of our parts, and 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 that that to me is the essential mystery, which which neuroscience isn't really equipped to answer in its current form. I think it will have to change its methods before it can get the answer to that question. Um, so so you know. That's an essential mystery to me. I'm I I, I wouldn't want to give it a label. Um, but but I think it's I think it's you know, profound, deep question which which satisfies I think many of, you know, my, my spiritual yearnings I can kind of package in this, you know, in in into that mystery.
1: Now you talk a little bit about at the end of your book the the different cultures, the science culture and the art culture and a third culture and a fourth culture. Do you see artists and scientists um, be being able to work more closely together? Do you feel like there is... Um, you write, you write in, in the coda of your book that, unfortunately, many of the luminaries of our current third culture are extremely antagonistic toward everything that isn't scientific. They argue that art is a symptom of our biology, that anything that isn't experimental is just entertainment. Um, so I just wanted to get your thoughts on what is, is there any any um, hope that we will be able to as a culture to be able to be more collaborative with our findings and with our work in, in these different cultures I think
2: I think there is hope um, you know obviously it's, it's very tough um, Science and art use such different languages science uses acronyms and art uses metaphors and and so on but i think i think people are starting to you know to realize that to answer the big questions of neuroscience the questions of consciousness and the self that 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 they'll have to trespass on these intellectual boundaries they'll have to merge disciplines um, so so i think that is something that's going to happen you know more and more in the future i think you know i think it's also starting to happen now in some interesting places um, you know i think molecular gastronomy this this big new trend in fancy cooking um, the idea of using techniques stolen from molecular biology labs, they're using weird forms of agar and stuff, and employing that to make delicious food. Um, you know, that, that's the kind of collaboration we need more of, and I think it's kind of ironic that chefs are leading the fourth culture parade, but I think, you know, it, it, it's popping up, this, this collaboration is popping up in all sorts of unexpected places. Um, lots of artists, I think, are, are, are starting to mine scientific journals for ideas and beautiful images and motifs. Um, so, so I think the, the, you know, the disciplinary boundaries are starting to break down at the margins and edges. Um, I think, you know, I think even disciplines like neuroeconomics and neuromarketing, um, trying to apply the ideas of modern neuroscience to everyday life, to, you know, to see what we can learn from watching people shop in the supermarket, um, you know, you know, you know what that can teach us about the brain. I think that's all good stuff for modern neuroscience. Um, so, so I think the conventional boundaries. Um, are, are starting to fall apart a bit. Um, that said, um, it's gonna be a long, long process. Um, these, these disciplines have invested so much time and energy in kind of fostering their own languages um, in, in their own vocabulary, so it'll take a long time before we can really get past it.
1: Now, you are somebody that has um, done a lot in your very short life, you're, you're 26 years old. Um, and I want to just talk to you a little bit about what you do when you're not writing books and when you're not um, writing for Seed and on your blog. You write that you have a big man crush on Jamie Oliver, and I was wondering if you might tell us why. <laughs> um,
2: you know, maybe it's his Cockney accent. I'm not. I'm, I'm not sure. You know, I. Um, you know. That, that particular blog post was prompted by something he did on one of his recent television shows, which he killed a chicken in front of a live television audience. Um, and, I, and I thought that was you know, just a really cool thing, um, you know, in terms of exposing people to the actual fact of eating meat involves killing an animal. I happen to eat meat, but I think it's important to be reminded every now and then that chicken shouldn't be quite as cheap as it is. Um, meat should be a little bit more expensive. Um, you know, otherwise we're supporting a factory farms and all the rest. Um,
1: well, I think you said pound for pound, chicken is cheaper than even the most commoditized products like salt, right? Uh,
2: well, well, that that particular blog post was prompted by me walking around my supermarket and realizing that there was a special on chicken, so chicken pieces were a buck twenty nine a pound. And then going back to the produce section and realizing that I couldn't find anything but onions and bananas that were cheaper than a buck twenty nine a pound. Um, granted, this is New England in the winter, so we don't have lots of cheap produce lying around. But still, the idea that I can buy meat, animals, for cheaper than I can buy, you know, white potatoes, um, was, was completely bizarre to me and, and not exactly right. Um, so, so that's where my main crush on Jamie Oliver came from. Um, you know, I've got, I've got, you know, when I'm not writing, I'm probably reading or being a Google monkey. Um, what's a Google monkey? Oh, just just surfing the web. that's, that's, that's my uh, fiance's name for what I do too much today.
1: Oh okay <laughs> So I want to um, close out the show with one last question for you. Um, it is really not a question as much as it is a quote of yours that I think is particularly hopeful, and I was wondering if you could elaborate it on a little bit um, in our last minutes. You write, "When we venture beyond the edge of our knowledge, all we have is art. And I was wondering if you could end the show with just a little bit of an elaboration on how and why you feel that way.
2: Well, this is, this like get, gets back in a sense to that God question. I think there are these essential mysteries that define human existence. The question of where the self comes from, why you know three pounds of, of electrical matter inside our skull can generate consciousness. These are deep, Profound mysteries that I don't think we will ever have really satisfying scientific answers to. That's my own personal perspective, um, and so I think the best way to deal with these mysteries um, isn't to you know pretend that we've somehow solved it. If we can find a neural correlate, if we can say consciousness is simply these cells in the prefrontal cortex, I think art really gives us insight, allows us to grapple with the mysteries without you know without pretending that we've explained them away. Um, so, so we can write novels that explore, these, that explore human experience. We can create paintings that move us for inexplicable reasons. And I think that's, that's the most meaningful way we have of really dealing with these mysteries, with being, you know, becoming intimate with these mysteries. Um, and, and so in that sense, I think art is the, the, the best response to these deep, deep paradoxes that define human existence.
1: Well, thank you, Jonah. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for writing this remarkable book, Proust Was a Neuroscientist, and thank you for taking our questions today.
2: Thanks so much for having me. It's a real pleasure.
1: Thank you. Well, we've come to our end of this episode of Design Matters. I'd like to thank my very special guest today, Jonah Lehrer. I'd like to give special thanks as well to our sponsor, Adobe, to Brian, Jeff, and Rubin at Voice America, Lisa and Jen Simon at Sterling, and Edwin Rivera for all of their help. Joining me next week on Design Matters is designer, writer, and educator Petrula Branktikis. Thank you for listening, and please remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I am Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you next week.
0: Voice America Business would like to thank you for tuning in for Design Matters with Debbie Milman. Be sure to listen every Friday at 12 Pacific Standard Time for another exciting hour of Design Matters. Right here on the bottom line in business talk, Voice America Business. Hi, I'm Greg Fraley, author of Jack's Notebook.